Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Director of Performance at Sparta Prague, Ben Ashworth. into episode 296 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to get Ben on for a part two, a long overdue part two. So we first chatted a couple of years ago when Ben was a physiotherapist at Arsenal Football Club. But since then, he has left Arsenal and ended up at Sparta Prague in the Czech Republic as Director of Performance. So naturally, that's a really interesting story. So we discussed that transition and how that's affected Ben as a, as a practitioner, but also the skills that he needs to pick up along the way to enable him to do that job effectively at Sparta Prague. So obviously, Ben, as, as his trade, is a physiotherapist. So we discuss some injury prevention strategies that he's trying to implement or is implementing at Sparta Prague. Then we get into some chat around post-match Nordics, some post-match running, um, top-ups, that kind of thing. Then we move on to some stuff around the ash test, which Ben is very well known for when it comes to uh, shoulder health and shoulder testing. So that's a really interesting way that we, we finish off the last 20-25 minutes discussing the, discussing the ash test. So if you are working with athletes who do have shoulder issues, um, baseball, tennis, etc. Definitely have a listen to those last 20-25 minutes because some real gold information in there for you. So I hope you enjoy this chat with Ben. Great to chat to him again and great to see his movement over to to the Czech Republic and uh, into his position as Director of Performance. So hope you enjoy this chat with Ben and I look forward to your feedback. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can do, and you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. So used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field, IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer battery life to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. 
I Measure You, now part of Vicon, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about I Measure You, head over to their website, imeasureyou.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at imeasureyou. So without further ado, over to the episode with Ben Ashworth. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So a long overdue part two with Ben Ashworth. So welcome to the podcast again, mate. Uh, thanks for having me. It was 2017. Uh, I looked it up and uh, yeah, so it's been a long time. It was. I didn't actually look that up, but I guessed it was about two and a half years. Something like yes, that. It's bang, it's bang on. It's bang on. Was it? Was it actually? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, nice. Exactly. So lots changed. Different country, different job, yeah. different role. Okay. Super exciting, super exciting. So last time we spoke, you were at Physio Physio Arsenal. Where are you now? Just want to give us a bit of background on how that, well, we'll go into how that happened, the changes and all that kind of thing. But yeah, what happened before Arsenal, Arsenal, and then where you are now? Okay, yeah, sure. So the background is basically, well, I'm 23 years qualified as a physio this year, and 18 of those have been working in elite sport. And I started with a great job in my favourite sport at the time, which was rugby. And I worked London Wasps for three years. Those years sort of passed me by, really, um, enjoying winning a lot, going out with some some really good, uh, really good players and some of my heroes. Um, but then I sort of had to get down to it a little bit. And I went to the British Olympic Association, where I worked with loads of different athletes from different sports. Um, Lucked out a little bit with a job leading the EIS team in London um, before, it was about 2007, so just before Beijing. Uh, again, a fantastic team to work with, loads of brilliant physios and S&C coaches. That then led me into a job which I took up from one of my staff who left, and I was the British judo physio in the lead up to uh, the London Olympics. Right. And the reason why I met- yeah, yeah. The reason why I mention that is because as part of the role sort of leading the team, I, my ambition was to go to the Olympic Games. So to to latch on to a team was really important to me. And actually, I lucked out with the team because, you know, we might talk about it later, but it was shoulder injury heavy. Um, not that that's a good thing, but it meant that I had to get pretty, <laughs> good, at sh- pretty good at shoulders pretty quickly. And then um, a complete right hard right turn after the olympics and was again lucky to and very fortunate for someone outside football to to be given the job at arsenal so then six very good years uh enjoyable years at arsenal uh finished in 2018 when Ars- arsene wenger finished and i had a personal development uh almost a year actually where i was setting up my own business uh, athletic shoulders and uh, doing some consultancy and going to meet people I've, I'd wanted to meet for a long time for my own personal development. Started a PhD. Um, and yeah, that's brought us up to almost the, the moment we're at now. And I, I took the job in Sparta out in Prague last March. And I've been here now just over just over a year. Yeah. I remember speaking to you in that transition after leaving Arsenal. And you were going all over the place. What did you cherry pick where you were going? Did you get requests? Was there any 
Yeah, what I'm trying to get at is, was there any real plan in terms of a personal, professional development checklist that you wanted to go and and uh, and check off? Yeah, um, I think it was, you know, a, a voyage. People people always say, oh, you know, if you're in the if you're in the area, just pop in. And you're never going to be in New York, or you're never going to be in <laughs> you know, San Diego, or wherever wherever it was. So, I was I built a nice network through Arsenal and through people like Daniel Cohen, who's connected to everyone, and he connected me to Tim Pello, who's connected to everyone. So I literally organised a West Coast tour, and it took in the Navy SEALs, U.S. Olympic Committee, the L.A. Rams, the 49ers, the Sharks, Kelly Starrett. Uh, you know, I just had a go, and then. Um, you know, there was some sort of personal development that was directed more towards shoulders. Um, but often I went into organizations, understood what they were doing with regard to shoulder issues. But then we would talk about other things like from Arsenal days and other problems around monitoring maybe and just just share, giving and sharing. Um, and it was a nice period because it was non-threatening. I wasn't, you know, trying to take any money off people. I literally was was able to fund my own personal development and pay for my own ticket and and yeah and, and do some great learning so it was, it was a fantastic time mm -hmm. and the transition from into into um into sparta prague how did that come around i've just been on a, a webinar about relationship building and <laughs> you know all that kind of stuff so it fits right yeah, in with yeah. that yeah yeah well that's good yeah i mean you know there's no secret the kind of my sporting director is um Thomas uh, Rosicki or Tom Rosicki as the English football public would know him as. And um, he came out here a year before and became the sporting director in the August um, before I before I joined the club. And I was his, you know, kind of go to person at Arsenal on a day to day basis in the last couple of years. And we just spoke about loads of stuff and built a really good relationship. And OK, there's friendship there, but there's also some sticky sticky patches you know and, and needing to be really honest and brutal with each other at times so i think we just went through those those phases and just built a very strong trust and um so when they were looking for someone actually they reached out to me to help them find someone uh, you know it wasn't a direct request because he didn't think i'd come um and so because he knew i was you know pretty much enjoying my year uh, and i'd set up my own business um so then a few conversations later and permission from my wife and I, I started in i started in march and it was literally the beginning of march we went on a skiing holiday and then at the end of march i was out here um just to sort of see out the last eight weeks of the season and just uh, have a surveillance period to see what was going on what needed change changing or you know what the lay of the land was out here before we had this sort of break in the summer so we could come back ready to start this season so your family's still in england are they with you yeah they're, they're in the uk um i've got an eight-year-old girl and eight-year-old daughter and she's happy and my wife's comfortable where they are they live in quite close to chelsea's training ground in cobham and you know life's good for them good network and we've we did six months to see how it was and everything was fine and we're coping well then we see each other when we can well pre lock pre this time we saw each other whenever we needed to uh, it's a little bit different now but yeah it's um it, it it's going okay i think um 
probably benefits my marriage, me being away. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> you know, so. it's it's often on the on the bucket list for every strength and conditioning coach, physio, anyone in that kind of behind this behind the scenes uh, support staff to tick that box to uh, to work overseas. Normally, probably in America or Australia, um, maybe not the Czech Republic. But even so, how how had that transition been, especially with your family? At home, even if your family were there, I guess it's still quite a tough, a tough transition. Yeah, I mean, I, I I've got a super su- supportive family, and that's been my life since they've known me. You know, so um, I had six years at Arsenal where I didn't see them. I saw I saw the players more than more than I saw my family really, and that was that was the important bit about having a year almost away from it. Um, in terms of the cut, like the transition to a new country, you know if the first language is English, it's a start. So, and people don't even realize that, but when I tell them that the meetings are in Czech, um, you know, and, and players generally speaking, most of them, the majority of them speak reasonable English, but it's not a, it's not a common, you know, language like you, if you were going to Holland or to Germany, um, meetings are primarily in Czech. So that, if you think about trying to influence change, in a new environment, then you're not just relying on, you know, your ability to influence. You're also relying on making sure that you capture a lot of the detail that gets lost in in translation. And it's exactly as it says, you know, lost in translation. So you can send reports, you can Google Translate, you can do what you like to try and bridge the gap. But, you know, spending time with coaches and being able to have conversations, you, you until you go to a place where you can't you can't speak the language, you don't really realise how how um, how flexible you have to be and how kind of you know how on top of everything you need to be. So I think it taught me a lot about taught me a lot about certainly influence and influencing styles. And I've I, you know I I have a Czech lesson every Wednesday. Um, you know, and, and that's not because I'm going to speak fluent Czech in the next couple of years, but it's because I'm in a Czech country and I need to try and meet them, you know, halfway. The players who come here also, they try and learn Czech um, to try and show that they're, you know, want to be a part of something, part of the culture. So it's important. So that brings me nicely onto the transition from physio Arsenal to a director of performance role do you still do hands-on work or is that are you just advising and overseeing at the minute yeah so when after my year after my kind of almost a year away from from physio I did some physio stuff and some rehab stuff I mean part of my background is you know masters in S&C and UKSCA accreditation as well so that kind of all-encompassing work with individuals was, was something that I was still doing before I came out here. But I didn't want to come here and be working in the team. I wanted to be working on the team. And, and to do that, there's there's this necessary sort of detachment. You've got to be available and remain available. But I didn't want to start coming in and, and um, imposing my thought processes on, you know, especially the physio team, but, it, it, you know, the S&C coaches as well. It was important to allow them time to um, show that that they were capable of of delivering in terms of the sort of standards that we would set. 
Um, and if I was jumping in every two seconds, it would it would certainly impede impede that development. So, um, yeah, where I've, I think I've put a hand on maybe three players in the last 14 months. Um, but I would say I'm, I'm very kind of uh, visible um, around the place. You know, I'm not sitting in a in an ivory tower. I'm uh, on the ground every day on the pitch in the gym. We meet regularly we discuss cases together the physios probably feel a bit of pressure but uh that's not a bad thing but they're they're all sort of stepping up to the plate which is which is good is there anything that you've had to learn quickly on the job in terms of being in that managerial position or do you think you you'd set yourself up to have a reasonably smooth transition into that yeah, the background I had was I worked in a team of leaders. You know, there were a lot of people at Arsenal who were first team physios by by name, under the you know under the guidance of Colin Lewin, who was our boss. And um, but you know, as he said, he he brought in people who were autonomous practitioners who were already at a level that had led teams in the past. So when you sat there in the morning and you were in a physio role, you understood your your position and you know the requirements to feed information to Colin to enable him to do his job to you know from the medical team perspective and how you interacted with the other departments but if you've got anything about you you sit there and you go well I don't think I'd do it like that what would I do if I was in a head of performance role or what would I do if I you know there were some disagreements as there should be in in good teams um but you learn so much in a in an organization like that about how it all interacts you spend time delving into GPS that you probably should have got home already, but you're so <laughs> in focused on one player and the fact that he did 60 meters more sprint distance than he should today. And you're currently working with him on his hamstring, you know? So that was a sort of microscopic view of life. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, to sort of answer the question is I felt very prepared to take the next step up. And I think the, the beauty of it was that I, I didn't go in terms of a linear career progression from a first team physio to then a head of department to then spend a couple of years doing that, maybe even at an equivalent or lower level than Arsenal and then try to transition up. I think that would have been detrimental to my career progress. And I, I knew I didn't want to go back and influence just the small things. I wanted to influence the big things. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that was, that was the key behind not taking jobs and opportunities that came my way within that nine month period and actually hold out for the right, the right challenge. Mm -hmm. I spoke to Jason Weber at Fremantle a few weeks ago and he's been had performance manager there for, I don't know, 12, 15 years, whatever it is. And he was talking about how you don't need to understand all the intricacies within people's roles, whether it be a the machine learning, um, coding, all these kind of things. You don't have to understand them in depth. But when somebody talks in their language, you have to, you can't be sat there with a glum look on your face. You've got to have that basic understanding. Is that something that you're getting to grips with in terms of them more, I suppose, specialist skills that maybe you don't learn through the traditional or traditional pathway, what was 10, 15, 20 years ago? Yeah, I mean, currently, and I, was, I sort of decided to do this, um, was a lot of it our CEOs wants to be very data driven. Um, and I, I'm, you know, people who know me probably, or people who don't know me probably think I'm just a numbers person. 
so it sort of suits me um that said i've been working in the trenches you know with the with the filter with the interpret i was the filter i was the interpreter of the information you know separating out the noise um so what i've done recently is I've, i'm actually doing currently a certificate at um, cambridge judge just in uh you know business analytics um looking at data interpretation and, and that side of it um so that you know talking about machine learning and ai and and, and all these other things um you know i can have a decent conversation with someone i, I recognize my own limitations but you know, I can be across it and I can be asking questions across it. So I, I totally agree with that. Um, similar thing around S&C coaching. I'm not an S&C coach, but I've done my time and I've not only formally qualified, but also worked with some really, really top people who, who I still ask questions of now in my network. You know, so being across that whole spectrum is, is vital. And originally it was being across physio and S&C because that was my that was my day to day was trying to work on, you know, building robust athletes and trying to, uh, you know, make sure that there was no detriment to performance. But now it's, it's okay. Is there something else that can help our team? You know, is there information that we could, we can hack to try and get a competitive advantage? Yeah. So that business analytics, there's no, there's no link in that course to sport. It's just within itself, but obviously you're going to link it to sport but the course itself, I mean. Yeah, it's, it's I yeah. mean, it's pretty, it's pretty hard. I was doing it till 1am 1 1, 1 last night because I got interested in it, but it, it's, um, you know, decision trees and, you know, products and uh, and some case studies from different areas. So, yeah, how how do you, the, the beauty of doing something like that, like any course, is if you're actually solving problems at the same time in your own workplace and then you read a book, listen to a podcast or do a course and it's it's applicable, then, then it, it it's fantastic for that. So, you know, I, I spoke to, I spoke to Joe Club at Buffalo, um, you know, and about their resources and their data science that they can utilize to answer some of their questions. And if you think about a lot of the work that I've done over over the years, it's all all been kind of a dumbed down version of science. You know, it might be regression, it might be linear relationships. It's not talking about kind of, you know, these these higher power data science functions that I think are really, really important to understand and, and understand their 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 place, understand their limitations. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So just getting the physio director of performance hat back on in a in a day to day workings, I suppose, in terms of culture and beliefs and way people work, how does that differ from the UK to to the Czech Republic and how they go about things, how they see things from, a, I suppose, a clinical and just use an example, return to play uh, point of view? Yeah, I mean, again, I've only I've been at one football club in the UK, Arsenal, I've yeah. been at one football club in the Czech Republic, so it might be a generalisation. But um, I think what I found when I came, um, and this is not, it's not, uh, intended to be a criticism, but there's some good work going on. You know, people talk about silos, but there's some good work going on. There's maybe a different skill set and different um, ideas and concepts over here, and particularly around the physio area. There might be there's a 
a local guru who looks at you know developmental patterning and so a lot of the preparation exercise will use this kind of develop development mental patterning work and that's really interesting and and probably achieves the same outcome from a different a different route um but what what they perhaps didn't have here was this connection this kind of idea of this interdisciplinary team you know my my role is the only one of its kind in in the czech republic so it sort of shows you that no one really knew what to expect and you know from a point of view of just simple stuff around communication channels that you and i would probably take for granted um they needed some guidance and direction to bring everything together into one place and to create transparency of information you know um for the benefit of the of the of the players and the benefit of the information that passes to the coaching team so you know certainly the level of practitioner um is is good but how they interact as a performance team was that was the difference yeah that's really interesting just writing them writing them notes down to make sure i remember that maybe some things that the less sexy stuff i guess when somebody says oh i'm moving to be director high performance like what's the first thing you do if you go well i'm going to sort out the transparency of of information and and the communication channels but that is the reality of of moving into that type of job in in a country where it, that role is in its infancy so not to get too deep into the weeds but what does that look like in terms of them two things the communication and the transparency of info what what is improving what was it like and what are you trying to move it towards well yeah i, I mean i you know, I think everybody, in fact, I had a chat with one of the physios who, who we actually took on board in the last year. And when he arrived at the beginning of the last year, almost the same time as I did, we brought him in um, from from the academy and up to the first team. He just remembered that the the morning, well, there wasn't a morning meeting. So, right. you know, like the simple things, you know, I mean, it's not. It's not rocket science, but, you know, just to make sure everybody checks in in the morning was something that I took for granted at Arsenal. You know, we had a meeting every morning. It was the same time. We knew we shouldn't be late for it. I set that up at, at Sparta because I need I needed to know the information, you know. And when I asked for it, like with some one-to-ones with the staff as I went through the first couple of weeks trying to learn what was going on, you know, I spent hours after hours talking to people and you find out what's going on. You find out that there's a complaint between between this commu- communication link and the interaction between this department and another department. And maybe, you know, those things, you just, people just give you that information. What was really important then was to bring that together. And, and simple stuff like when I asked for it, there was an injury audit, but it was on one of the computers. When I asked for fitness data, it was on someone else's computer. So, you know, I mean, I, I, um, it's a shameless plug, but I brought in Edge 10 because we, we used them at Arsenal and I wanted an athlete management system. And we had a different GPS system at the time and I'd used Statsports at Arsenal. So again, I got on the phone immediately and I said, right, we need, you know, yes, we need the technology, but the reason for the technology was one accurate information and we want to store it in one place where it's, there's some transparency and ability to share and, and also to create some accountability. Um, and I tried to remain hands off for about eight weeks, but it lasted about three days <laughs> before I uh, before I found there was a 
there's a disagreement between how long an injury had, had, you know, what time frame since the injury had occurred. And there was a difference of opinion between uh, the departments, if you like. Um, and then after that, they they knew quite quickly that, you know, we needed to understand exactly what the healing timeframes were, exactly what the learning parameters were and all the rest of it. So there, it was, it was simple. It was the end product of that. And the interesting thing was the coach at the time was going mad because he had about three different people coming to him with different information in the mornings. And I know that sounds obvious and I don't want to, you don't want to criticize, but that's, that's how it had become. Um, and that's, you know, coach can't do his job if he's worrying about how many players are on the pitch. You know, it's just, it's just streamline, streamline that communication channel. Everything's coming through me from now on, like it or lump it, whether you're a doctor or a, you know, head of your own department, this is the way it's going to be from now on. And it was a bumpy change. Um, but when everybody looks back now, they're, you know, very pleased that we've gone to the level we've got. The other thing I'll add is that in the last 14 months, we're on our fourth coaching team. Right. Oh, wow. Just so, the spatter in the works. <laughs> interim, interim changes as well. So th- we're on our third coach and his, and his assistant coaches, but there was an interim team as well who took over uh, to sort of steady the ship before the start of the season. So, not only have you got the change in the personnel happening or the things happening within the performance team, you've also got building the relationship, you know, starting another relationship with another set of coaches, which, which of course means you've got to educate again. And the education piece is, is absolutely massive to get your way of working and your philosophy to, to you know, to be able to influence in, in that direction, whilst also understanding the way that they want to play, the way that they want to work. So that's been a real, a real challenge. All in a country where you don't speak the language. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Did yeah. you have any help on a day-to-day basis with someone who does speak Czech or not? Yeah. We, my, one of my head fitness coach is, you know, Slovakian guy. He's been at the club for 10 years, fluent English. He's, you know, he works at the local faculties. He's, um, you know, He's a he's a good guy, and I take him in if there's something that is re- really needs and requires in depth understanding to make sure there's no there's nothing lost in translation. I'll, I'll take him in with me, yeah, absolutely, and we'll prepare and we have our morning meeting. Then we'll go into the coaches. So the the workflow has changed significantly as well, and it, and it's just all it is is about making sure people not have the information that they need to do their jobs. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Ben. Hope you're enjoying part one. So over in part two, we discuss more around injury prevention strategies. And then we finish off with a detailed discussion around the ASH test. So Ben is obviously well known for his work on uh, shoulder health uh, and shoulder injuries. So that, that last bit of the podcast is really interesting for those who work in tennis, baseball, rugby, uh, American football, any sport that has... Uh, that their athletes have shoulder issues. So really interesting part two coming up with Ben, which I'd love your feedback on. 
This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by AthleteMonitoring.com, the world's most comprehensive, versatile, and cost-effective athlete health and performance management platform for elite sports. So AthleteMonitoring.com is trusted by top development programs, universities, professional teams, Olympic programs, national sports organizations, and research institutes worldwide. It streamlines data collection, centralizes the management of wellness, training and performance, medical and testing, and administrative data. It also simplifies the interpretation with best practice analytics and evidence-based methods to optimize performance and reduce injury risk. So with all these features on a single platform, AthleteMonitoring.com seamlessly brings key stakeholders together to build healthier athletes, more efficient organizations, and long-lasting successes. To see what AthleteMonitoring.com can do for you, visit AthleteMonitoring.com and schedule a free demo, or follow them on Twitter at AthleteMonitor. This episode is also sponsored by Omega Wave, which is the only non-invasive, at-rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. So using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position and this data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement only takes four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sport athletes, military and law enforcement agencies. They're also an official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. So to learn more about Omega Wave, visit their website, omegawave.com or visit their social media channels. Just going on to another topic which comes up all the time in the podcast and I'm not going to apologize for going over it again with with someone else it's always good to get different perspective on how people think and beliefs and things like that and that's hamstring injuries so in terms of prevention or risk mitigation or any other fancy term that we want to use not basically not having players get hamstring injuries what's your I suppose overarching belief and how you go about trying to trying to do that yeah I think I think you've actually I think the last time we spoke a lot about hamstring injuries and I think at the time at the time I was in conversations using my Arsenal badge to leverage conversations with David Opar you know I instead of reading his papers I'd just pick up the phone um and that's my that's my modus operandi if you like is just why would I read a paper on something when mm-hmm. I can just go to source and the conversations we had probably, you know, he would say, I met up with him a couple of years ago, he would say actually shaped some of the work that they were doing because we were dealing with hamstrings. We had, a, you know, a decent injury list in some of those years and we had a, 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 a problem that we needed to solve. And so we went and tried to solve it. So the reason why I'm saying that is because there are better people than me who've done massive studies in PhDs and all the rest of it on on um, on hamstring injuries and I, I'm just an interpreter of that research and have to try and grab and filter what I want and put it into place in my own environment um, that said I, I like to keep things really simple um, and one simple thing is we, yes we use the Nord board um, to measure our 
are players against industry standards, you know, so there's a nice uh, infographic which has been done by Valve based on a lot of their data from Champions League and Premier League. And we know where we sit as a team average compared to those team averages from those European teams. So benchmarking is really important for us, you know, and over 66% of our squad are above those standards, um, which is fantastic. And only one person dropped below the line in terms of like a 337 cutoff, which was the original cutoff from the, mm-hmm. from the research. Yeah. And that's probably because he got tested at the end of a first week of preseason. Okay. So, you know, the interpretation of that value, he's probably one of our most robust players, but he just had a bad test. Okay. So firstly, hamstring strength. Um, yeah. And then secondly is exposure to speed and the hamstring strength stuff in terms of programming. Um, I've got a ex world champion boxer. Who's my, one of my S and C coaches and he's in the gym and so if we say we're going to do Nordic hamstrings, then they're going to get done. Right? <laughs> and, Absolute and hard as nails. <laughs> hard as nails. Great bloke, yeah. but hard as nails. And also, like, the compliance out here is phenomenal. So if you want something done, you're not dealing with, uh, you know, perhaps people who would disagree in other walks of life. Be careful what I say there. Um, <laughs> but since coming over here, the compliance is excellent. And so that we do our Nordics, we sometimes do them in corridors after matches, you know, and because we build that base up and people have bought into it, now people don't find it a problem and we do them as regularly as we can so that, you know, hamstring force production doesn't suffer. So we build it up in the off season and we maintain and build in pre-season. And, you know, our Nordic scores, our Nord board scores have gone up 20% since July, right? Which is, which is a nice thing to be able to say as a, as a stat. But the the actual outcome of that is we've we haven't had a time loss hamstring injury in 14 months in a professional football team, uh, which is something I'm very proud of, and our team should be very proud of because of the process. The other part of that, as I was going to say, is the is the exposing people to speed, and through educating the coaches here, we try and make sure that people every seven to ten days are exposed to 95% of their maximum. If we can get it in drills, we get it in drills or big pitch or whatever we want to do. If we don't get it there, we get the live iPad out and we go, right, you're just, you're just running, fellas. And, um, you know, once they hit their dose that we're happy with for that week, based on position as well as um, sort of individual injury history, once they've hit that, we yank them. And we get them to move on to the next thing. But if they haven't hit it, then we make them, we make them do it. And I believe that the combination of those two factors really is the key thing um, to maintaining a decent hamstring health. At the same time, um, we keep a good eye on the training loads. So, you know, I think speaking to David Opar back in the day, 70% we put down to kind of training load in our conversations, you know, so managing that piece was really important. And then when you had a spike in load, could you buffer against it by influencing all of those kind of um, modifiable risk factors? Um, and the way we would choose to do that in our cohort and our, our players is to just smash out Nordics um, for most players. Uh, you know, it, it really is that simple. Let's talk about post-match Nordics. 
because that's <laughs> maybe been touched on before, but not gone into super lot, lots of detail, and maybe it doesn't. It's not necessary to go into lots of detail here. But what did you introduce that at Sparta Prague, or was that in previous club, uh, previous club at Arsenal? And what was the buying like? At what what um, what triggers the need for that? Is there a certain um, number of times they're exposed to it in a week, and therefore the only time you can get it in is after a game? Tell tell us a little more about that. Yeah, so a few things there. I think at Arsenal we tried to, you know, certainly with with Shad Forsyth and Barry Solan at Arsenal coming in there, players who hadn't played a full match would would you know do their do their leg strength work at the stadium after a game, and the the things you can do is up to you. But you know, within the changing room, you can do a Nordic and you can do a Bulgarian and you can do an RDL probably. So that that was easy to do and something that some players did. Um, but when I came here, it was more about the, exactly as you say, the making sure they get that regular dose in based on, you know, the research that was suggested. If you don't maintain that, things are going to change, you know, from a architectural point of view, but also from a force production point of view. Um, and I think also if you did that immediately and you hadn't built up to it in a pre-season, of course, there'd be problems and issues with recovery. But it was finding the right time in the week to do Nordics. And if you played, you know, we played in some of the Europa stages, early stages of Europa. If you're playing three games a week, you know, you can't you can't do a, a set of Nordics two days before a game, really, in some players. And so we tried to literally just go right well it's a high day we're going to smash in the nordics as well and then we're going to recover hard for the next couple of days and, and and get them back up to the level where they're going to perform again the idea is that you leave a three-day window before they're going to really expose themselves to a high volume of high intensity mm-hmm. and that's exactly the same not exactly the same but similar with um with the high speed running and the, and the sprint exposures, you do some after a game. We do some after a game, not necessarily for the guys that have played, but for the for the guys that hadn't, just to make the most of that sometimes time that's actually lost because it's a game day. Yeah, we will now because uh, yep. we've got we've got a basketball schedule coming up. <laughs> yes. So um, so so yeah, we'll we'll see how good our hamstrings are over the next month or so, but. Um, yeah, I think the the important thing is almost to keep people on the same rhythm. And if you're going to be playing every three days or t- you know, three games in a week, if you like, or three games in eight, seven or eight days, then there's no good time. You know, and and people have different ways of doing it. And our way is to do it after ma- after matches, and it's an optional thing. You know, so we don't go and say you have to do them. Maybe we do because the boxing uh, <laughs> straight, yeah. straight go gives, on. gives them the option. Yeah. <laughs> Gives them the option. Will you you doing your Nordics? Um, yeah. But um, yeah, the compliance is is incredible. And and of course, if someone's tight or they've had a high exposure, and they don't want to do it, then we don't we don't make them do it. Um, we just note down that they haven't done it. Mm-hmm. That, that, so that's what, so what kind of in terms of Nordics, what kind of volumes are we looking at after uh, after if after, if you're going to do it after games? After games is you know two threes. That's all. Yeah. So just making sure that it's a four to five second rep, not a not a falling over clap push up. Mm-hmm. Um, and if on occasion guys who are willing to do it, some of them have cramped up. Of course, we stop it immediately then. So there's a, you know, you can see 
the trade-off there is are we are we assisting with adaptation or are we you know adding unnecessary load to these players but so far if the output is whether we've had a hamstring injury or not um, and whether players have managed to maintain or get stronger then on those two you know counts we've done pretty well and it seems to be working but obviously now we're going to put that under a little bit of stress see how good you've been yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we did the podcast now, actually, to be honest, because I know. Because, yeah, if we did part three in about a month and a half time, I'd, you probably wouldn't be able to find me for a podcast. But yeah, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. So the next thing I want to chat about is is definitely your forte and where I kind of creep back and shrivel and feel really uncomfortable talking about certain things that I certainly know very little, well, not very little, but um, horrendously amounts less than you about, and that's shoulders. So we touched on this two and a half years ago, but the ash test. Give us yeah. the background and the work that went behind that and what it actually is, then we'll, we'll use that as a bit of a jumping off point. All right, that's cool. Yeah, the last, when I spoke to you last time, I was so cagey about it it was horrible but I felt like I I was really careful about not publicizing something that we didn't know anything about yeah right we had some initial good findings so so the test is basically an isometric three second maximal test um in terms of seeing it or looking at videos you know I've done some webinars on it and I've uh, it, there's some stuff online as well which we can link to but um but essentially, it's a prone lying test in three positions and a long lever position. So an I test, a Y test and a T test. So kind of 180 degrees. In fact, I could show you kind of a 180, a 135 and a 90 degree position lying prone. Um, and the, the, the test itself came from a conversation with some really good people at Saracens. So there was Paddy Hogben, strength and conditioning coach, Laura Tulloch. Um, he's a physio, uh, Daniel Cohen, who's my go-to force person. And, uh, I'd done a lot of work with him at Arsenal and then Nav Singh, who was, um, you know, the data analyst or sports scientist at Arsenal, who was helping us with the daily monitoring. So all those heads were better than one. And we basically were looking at the fact that Sarri's had some issues around quantifying end stage return to play prior to going into kind of long lever tackling. And... They were doing a load of handheld dynamometer testing. They would look at gym-based markers, and they were guys who were super strong, who could produce force with short levers, who, when they were exposed to long lever tackles or arm grab tackles, would have symptoms of instability or actually pain and would break down. So it was finding a way of quantifying that. So I think I was at St. George's Park at the time. and I, had a, I might have actually had a beer mat, but it you know, it, it was definitely drawn up on the back of a beer mat. And then when I got back to Arsenal, I did some pilot work on my, my N equals one self. And it seemed to make a lot of sense. And it fitted with the hamstring isometrics we were doing at the time. Anyway, then the Saris guys, the team there, ran with it. And what they did was they did a lot of pilot work on a number of people. And we met as a group to discuss what they were finding and how we could modify that quite regularly. Good learning for all of us, really. Um, around this problem solving and so at the end of the day they found a lot of stuff in their pilot testing that, that was of great interest so historical shoulder problems that had big asymmetries or 
guys who you know passed certain tests but didn't pass others or guys coming back from surgery who at certain stages were having definite deficits still that weren't even uh, some of them they did in the pilot study who then became injured they then had a pre-injury benchmark for so they could use that so long story short we had a number of case studies that showed really interesting stuff and i think that was about the time i spoke to you um yeah i don't think you can i don't think you can mention saracens when we spoke no, i, I don't I think you have to keep that yeah 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 i don't think i i could and, and the guys there have been really good about like sharing the information you know as long as it's de-identified you know we published it i mean we published it as a a non-sexy reliability piece but that was i was determined to get that done to show that it worked and could give you reliable data because from my world at the time that was so important um but what i really wanted to get onto was sharing it so that people could apply it and what's happened since then is you know i mean yeah i'm trying to use a word that isn't viral but you know it, it it's it's essentially i'm getting i'm getting emails pinging pinged with emails from from you know, volleyball coaches in 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 various countries like sevens teams you know women's sevens in new zealand you know wherever it is who are asking about this test now because it's out there in the public domain um daniel cohen and i have written a bgsm editorial about basically rate of force development and using that as one test as part of a cluster of tests like with a plyometric push-up with the original handheld dynamometry stuff or using a force frame you know it 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 fills a knowledge gap there's a this long lever test seems to hit stuff that others other tests don't and it is very applicable uh to people i have conversations with in major league baseball um you know talking to tennis and british tennis it's very applicable and now we've got some really interesting information from a number of studies that not only looks at injury risk when compared to this but also stacks up um against performance markers yeah so it's 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 growing all the time it's not at the stage of lower body literature and and understanding but it's it's this area that i'm really keen on making sure we we uh you know build and develop the ideas as fast as we can mm -hmm. one thing i saw the other day and i put it on the on the email that i fired over the message that i fired over was the force hooks is that what they call yes. force hook Yes, because yeah. of the image of the guy. I think I think it might have been a girl on lying prone on the bench, and yeah, yeah. Could that could that be utilised instead of a force play? Because I'm I'm guessing that you might tell me wrong, but I don't think this product's out yet. But they're doing a lot of bit of publicity around it, and maybe That's a cheaper right. option than a force play. Yeah, so I already told you. I'm I already told you. I'm straight to the point. I've called yeah. I called I called them up and I wanted yeah. to chat because actually they put the ash test using a bar prone using the the force hooks. And I had a good good conversation about that. So it comes back to the thought process, you know. We decided to do it in those positions using a force platform because it was stable. It takes out human error, and also it gives you RFD, which other other tests don't. So they'll give you peak force, but it won't give you RFD. So as a compromise, something like a handheld dynamometer can be used. Even a sphig cuff, so the squeeze cuff that used for adductors, can be used because I've supervised an MSC project that looked at the correlation between the force platform and the ash test and um, and the sphig cuff just so that it can get out to the wider population. But ultimately, you're missing a big piece of the puzzle, which is rate of force development. Um, we'll know, come back I, to that in a minute. Just remind well, myself. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, no worries. And I think that the the other thing about that to say is there's some guys who have sunken force platforms just by their facilities and they've used a dumbbell on the platform in the same positions just because they see the value of the positions. As long as you standardize and do your own internal validation on your test and it's reliable and repeatable, then yeah, it, I'm, I'm not saying it's the right or wrong thing to do. I'm just saying that, you know, we're building a body of knowledge around one thing. We standardize that and we know it works. How you decide to apply it with your own cohort of athletes. I've got the, uh, I've got the force platforms in my flat from the last few weeks and I've been playing around with different angles. So, you know, just in terms of ball release for, for baseball and, yeah, there's some other bits and pieces I'm playing around with for my PhD when that kind of kicks back in. But um, yeah, I'm I'm not precious about it being the only test. It's just interesting, I think, looking at longer levers um, and what that relates to. Yeah. Who are the guys behind the Force Hooks? Seems like you've spoken to them. Is it independent? Uh, yeah, uh, Jason is um, the main guy and he's uh, developed that. He's working uh, with um, Sophie Nymphius, I believe. And uh, yeah, they're working down there in Australia. Um, yeah. And, you know, again, I, as I understand it, that's going to be at some point in the next few months is going to be available. I think they're just making some, you know, uh, last minute, sort of modifications to the product before the launch yeah nice so back to rfd why so why so yeah. important why so important well all the meaningful actions of injury and performance happen in a very short time window and um you know if you look at lower limb literature which is basically what i'm doing is i'm hacking into lower limb stuff that's already been done and then trying to apply it to the upper body which makes sense to me um if you look at a if you look at a drop jump you know athletes can't necessarily perform a decent drop jump the day after a game in football but they can probably do a reasonably normal counter movement jump so if you give people longer to produce force then not anybody can do it but you know you, you can you can get away with it you can you can still perform in tests so the reason for the rfd stuff is that in in my eyes it's a sensitive marker of fatigue and it's something that can be whilst it's quite a volatile metric in a number of areas and as you know in the literature if you look at it if you've got um a coefficient of variation of under 15 percent in your rfd you're probably doing pretty well we've seen rfd in the ash test of five percent across four trials you know so the, the most important thing just on that is the familiarization and the education around it before you go in cold and try and do it. But the RFD is, um, you know, it's, it's not how big a muscle is. It's how quickly you can switch it on at the right place in the right time. And it probably talks to the neural elements of force production a little bit more than it does to the architectural components of force production. Um, and all this knowledge comes from, again, a conversation where I read a 20-page Nick Maffioletti paper and then I called him up because Alan McCall had his number and he was gracious enough to give me 60 minutes of his time, which was some of the best learning on RFD that you can get firsthand from the man himself. And he said there's not a lot of stuff being done in upper limb RFD. And it was true when I looked at the research, but to get the best out of that test, you really need to understand rate of force development before you go down that route of looking at it. Yeah, as a variable. Yeah. 
So this will be the last question before I let you shoot on we get on with your evening. Where next? Where next for this area? I know you've mentioned uh, the PhD when that kicks back in, but where next in this area for you? Well, I've maintained conversations around my athletic shoulder business with with baseball, with um, you know the LTA, with uh, rugby teams. So I think the first thing is understanding where we're at. So you know, people sort of want to go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. But firstly, let's let's capture what we've already got. We've got a number of really interesting case studies there um, around just the ash test, but also how the ash test interacts with other measures that people are generally doing, like 1RMs in the gym, like, you know, connection from from CMJs to an upper limb test of, you know, rate of force and force. Or maybe there's something in that, you know, and certainly the project I'm working in with the LTA on there is is around transfer of force. And if you're not utilizing and storing and optimizing your force production from the lower body, then you're basically catching up and overloading through your shoulder. So if you've got all that information already, and most teams do, it's then the understanding of how to put it together and then match that up against injury and match that up against performance. And I think that it's it's a pretty easy step to do, but you need to have a little bit of foresight to start to collect that information, to then stack that up over a few seasons to see what happens with it. And maybe we need to pull some data from a couple of teams now um, who are using ash testing alongside other markers to do what we're doing with lower body, which is which is the norm, you know, looking at squat, looking at percentage body weight, looking at absolute relative values, how do they all interact? Um, and that's probably the next step for us. So are you actively looking for people who are using the ash test to kind of pull things together and get in touch and share information and whatnot? Yeah, I absolutely yeah. love it. Uh, yeah. I, I, reply, <laughs> I reply to every email. I've been Zooming the life out of it as well. I'm trying to create an opportunity and I've been doing some webinars with people just sharing what we know, you know, within the constraints of what you can share within organizations. But, um, but my own personal development around is really, it's really interesting. Like how do, how do people utilize it? Uh, it? It was a, it was a thought process we came up with as a, as a group and it's worked for what we were trying to solve. But then how, are, how's, um, a guy in Spanish volleyball looking at it and he looked, he looked against the spike velocity against ash test RFD and found some really interesting, uh, you know, associations we'll call them because I don't want to go down that route, but of saying it's correlated, but there's some very strong relationships. Um, working as a consultant for the Toronto Blue Jays, which I can say with Clyde Brewer and Angus, um, I was, in-house in spring training for five days and, and we'd already looked at one year's worth of information around their their athletes and their players before we then tested them again um you know 75 players and we'd looked at 92 people who threw a fastball the year before so we know a, a decent amount about how that that relates in that sport but also not just in that sport but in that organization you know which is really important around their own athletes um about how that information might transfer to help them answer some questions. Amazing. Where, where can people, if, if people are interested in being involved, where, where's the best place to to contact you? And I suppose on a global level, whatever, if it's ash yeah. test and, and shoulder stuff or it's anything else we've spoken about, where's the best, paper, best place for people to get in touch? 
Well, I think, you know, from my side, uh, you can email me. My ben at athleticshoulder.com is easy. You can go through my social channels. Um, so Ben Ashworth on Twitter or Athletic Shoulder on Instagram, if that's easier for you. Um, or I'm on LinkedIn. So whichever you come at me with, um, probably an email's the best. Awesome. Well, I'm going to let you get on with your evening. What what time is it there? Are you at how many hours in front of you? Well, we're um, what are we on seven seven twenty here. Oh, so we're an hour so. we're an hour ahead. Yeah. Okay. And um, if, before I go, and we mentioned this before actually, and you know that I've got a podcast of my own up and running. Oh yes. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Apologies. Okay. Yes. That's okay. You know, I know you see it as massive competition. Um, <laughs> so you, you were trying to cut me off before I plugged it. <laughs> right, finish there, finish there, stop. stop. <laughs> no, um, it's important I say it because, uh, first, firstly, thank you to you because when I phoned you up and asked you how to set up a podcast, which I'd always wanted to do, um, you gave me all the advice in the world, uh, you know, that you had available and you, you've gone on to massive things and we're at the start of ours, but it's Informed Performance Podcast. Um, there's 29 episodes out there at the moment on all the normal channels and the main thing to say is I couldn't do it on my own so I met a really good guy who's a dual qualified S&C coach and, and physio Andy McDonald who's now doing his doctorate out in Philadelphia so he's the voice slash face of the podcast at the moment um, and you know you can go on Instagram and inform performance and you can go on Twitter inform pod um, and we've tried to, wherever possible, not to interview guests that have been on Pacey Performance, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that we don't try not to duplicate. But I think there's been some really nice, uh, nice things on there, nice stuff. I'm making notes on a couple of them recently, um, myself on a few runs around Prague. So, yeah, <laughs> worth, worth a listen at this time. Absolutely. I spoke to Andy the other day and it was good to catch up with him and just share journeys. I, I, I like it. Like, I know you made, you made a bit of a joke of it, but the, the more the merrier, like the more podcasts can become the norm of, you know, education, entertainment, whatever it may be. And I think that that is happening, but I'm happy to help anyone out there. Like I stuck on social media the day, I'm happy to help anyone. There's been probably, I think I've probably had four chats in the last two weeks with people who are reasonably serious, I think, about about setting them up or having them already. So I'm I'm delighted. I like, bring it on. Yeah, it's just a really nice way of, of well, it's a really nice way of networking and and the connections from that, as you know, uh, and uh, Andy's Andy's gonna be gonna be great in in some professional sport in the US at some point in the coming years once he's finished his doctorate. Um, but for him, obviously, for me to be able to introduce him to my network, but also, um, you know, he's a sharp guy, so you know, his questions his questions are the are the questions of loads of all of us who are sitting around there, who who are you know, who, who would love that opportunity to sit with these guys and, and, and talk. And, and, you know, it's been actually one thing we've done really, I think, quite well is we've hit we've hit a lot of the really good female, um, uh, you know, practitioners in sport. You know, a lot of our early episodes ended up being, uh, you know, basically guys who are working in really elite jobs in often male-dominated environments and who, mm -hmm. who've been made a massive success of it. So that was... That was something, again, you know, pretty proud of being a father yeah, of a daughter, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll link to all that stuff, all your papers and uh, the, the podcast as well, of course, um, and on the, on the website and so people can use that as a bit of a resource to, to jump off from. But thank you very much for your time. 
enjoy that wine that I can see over your left shoulder <laughs> and enjoy your steak. <laughs> enjoy your steak. Yeah, will do, mate. Thanks very much for having me on. And, uh, you know, that's um, it's been good fun. It's been good fun again. Pleasure. Thanks, mate. Speak soon. All right, mate. Cheers. Bye. Cheers, pal. Thanks for tuning in to episode 296 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So big thanks to Ben for coming on for a part two, a long overdue part two. It's great to see his transition from Arsenal over to Sparta Prague in the Czech Republic. Also big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to iMeasureU, Athlete Monitoring and Omega Wave for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so really appreciate their support. So we've got some really cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks with episode 300 looming at the uh, at the start of july so thank you again for all your support and i will chat to you next week